Welcome to the Revenue Engine Podcast. I'm your host, Rosalind Santa Elena, and I am thrilled to bring you the most inspirational stories from revenue generators, innovators, and disruptors, revenue leaders in sales, in marketing, and of course, in operations. Together, we will unpack everything that optimizes and powers the revenue engine. Are you ready? Let's get to it. Building that top of funnel demand and predictable revenue is always top of mind for all executives, especially revenue leaders, but it's hard, right? As Steve Schmidt, the CEO and founder at Tidal says, top of funnel, if done right, earns you a spot for the rest of the funnel. So how do you fill your sales funnel with the right prospects and accelerate revenue? Today's podcast is sponsored by Outreach.io. Outreach is the first and only engagement and intelligence platform built by revenue innovators for revenue innovators. Outreach allows you to commit to accurate sales forecasting, replace manual processes with real-time guidance, and unlock actionable customer intelligence that guides you and your team to win more often. Traditional tools don't work in a hybrid sales world. Find out why Outreach is the right solution at click.outreach.io slash RevEngine. In this episode of the Revenue Engine podcast, Steve shares how you can leverage the science of high-tech solutions with the art of human communication to provide solutions to power and accelerate the revenue engine. Steve also shares how posting and sharing content on social media, specifically LinkedIn, earned his team the right to executive level conversations with accounts that quickly turned into customers. So super excited to be here today with Steve Schmidt, the CEO and founder at Tidal. For anyone not familiar with Tidal, Tidal helps businesses drive more top-of-funnel demand and predictable revenue with an omni-channel approach. So we'll learn more about this as we unpack Steve's story. So welcome, Steve, and thank you so much for joining me. It's a long time coming, and I reminded you of this the other day. I said it, it's an, always an honor to um, get to ask to come on and speak to a show you've religiously listened to as one of your three kind of go-to podcasts. So it's it's awesome to be here. Thank you for having me so much. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate the support also and just the feedback. So super excited to talk to you. So let's start by talking a little bit about your background and about, you know, your career journey. You know, you've been in a number of different revenue leadership roles. You've been at companies like T-Mobile, at Verizon, you've been at AT&T and more. So maybe can you share more about your career journey, you know, kind of prior to, prior to Tide? Sure. I was I was one of those telecom guys who, you know, telecom eventually when I when I first got into work in like 2001, my first job out of college was selling cell phones. Well, if you fast forward, it kind of it was always to businesses, uh, but it eventually evolved into telecom, into cloud. So when the cloud infrastructure first was introduced in 2007, 2008, I was like an account manager at AT&T and we had about I had a book of about 12 million in revenue a month. Our, uh, wow. 12 million revenue up per year, pardon me. So I had big mm-hmm. like international toll-free customers who did literally about, no, it was 12 million a month, sorry. It was $144 million book of business. They did, a, they did $5 million of international toll-free over the phone per month. And the cloud was coming around. So, so really at that time, we're hearing about this for the first time, trying to understand the future economy. Does this thing have legs or not? Turns out 
it does. It did. And <laughs> true. It was, it was, it was everything we heard it would be. And then some, and I ended up really enjoying probably the most fun I had in telecom uh, was right before I left to go to outreach with Matt Millen, who now is over at Reggie. Matt's Matt's one of my best mentors. He's become a friend. Mm. Matt was my VP at T-Mobile. And oddly enough, we were starting to demo outreach software because I was trying to introduce it to the group. We didn't have any tech but Salesforce. So, um, you know, I had introduced this to him. And two months later, he said, hey, Steve, I'm going to outreach as a CRO. And I said, well, take me with you. Yeah. And I, I, I went over to outreach and, and was even able to do some things like made winter circle in the first three months and had a, a really good group of people. I shortly like seven months in, I had to relocate, went through a you know divorce and wanted to be close to my family, which two decades in Minneapolis back to South Dakota and that mm. career choice. It wasn't a career choice. It was a necessity. I, I, I needed to go to rehab. I was, I was addicted to booze and pills at the time. It was really messing <laughs> oh, my no. life up. And oh, and, no. and for me, I knew I needed to take 30 days and, and get busy. So I got closer to my family, uh, ended up falling in love with my wife, who I grew up with. And I was back. It was a terrible Hallmark movie, really, when you think about it. It was like, boy comes home to go to rehab, sees ex-girlfriend oh. in grocery store, falls in love and never leaves. And like I was the wet puppy dog who she was like, I kind of feel bad for you, but talk to me when you get out of rehab. That'd be a really good move. And so oh. I ended up kind of, you know, coming out of this whole thing going, man, last thing I knew I was at outreach, having a pretty successful career. How'd I end up in South Dakota on my mom's, in my mom's bedroom? Oh. And um, that was call it. That was okay that that all happened because I think we all need to, as family, you know, support each other. And I hadn't been around my family for a couple of decades, like living next to them. Mm. And so that's when this next, you know, I'd been in outreach and learned so much. I mean, that was really my first sales tech experience, SaaS experience. Nobody would hire telecom reps into SaaS, and they still kind of feign, you know, they 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 veer away from it. But ultimately, I had to get stuck here to go. There is no job for me here. And pre-COVID, like nobody wanted to hire remote employees in South Dakota. Like that was, even if I had a good track record. So I was I was at a place where I said, I need to do something that makes me happy. And I obsessed over the top of funnel, all, all the, the tech stack, uh, just kind of the engineering that went behind it, how to make it not just go fast and, and do stuff, but truly how to make it revenue impactful. So I applied my own tech stack at a job. I ended up here being an AE for like some local managed service provider and ended up selling about 1.6 million against a $600,000 quota in just in, in record time. And that wow. tech stack, I was able to assemble my own. I bought it all myself, broke through the firewall and pretty much assembled my first tech stack, a Salesforce outreach, Zoom info, ring lead on the back end. And I just cooked with that thing. And so I would wow. automate it. So I'd be driving six hours across the state because I had to go out to the Black Hills, like Mount Rushmore, which there's like zero people for six hours. And oh then you get goodness. there to this beautiful place because they said that's the only territory we have open. I said, I'll take it. <laughs> but I would just leave at three in the morning so I could get there when the sun was still coming up and I'd get to the office and, and six hours away with coffee and I'd say, all right, who's ready to get to work? Wow. And like this new sober, curious version of myself would just... I'd book meetings through automation on the way there and just have a, you know calendar slots. And every time someone booked one, it would add through technographic drops that name and said, now I'm meeting with these companies. And so oh it was automatically goodness. populating while I was driving out there. And pretty soon the calendar, I'd get alert that said, you know, no more calendar slots available. Mm -hmm. The only problem was I wasn't cognizant that there, I would only put a half hour between meetings, but they were like 45 minutes apart. 
And oh. so I would I'd drive six hours, drive another 10 hours going back and forth for two days. So I couldn't figure out how to do that one quite right. But mm. I think that's when I said, man, if I can make this work for myself, I can probably make it work for other people. And I got hired shortly after that by a couple of guys in, in the pandemic and they wanted to sell PPE. I'm sure you've heard of that happening before. We went on to sell about $170 million worth of it in six months. And wow. um, I spun up a tech stack that had Conversica weaving behind Drift. And we had a full sales ops department that we spun up in about a month. We, we hired 42 people in a month. And that's when wow. I said, if we can do that, I'm going to go out and do this on my own for multiple companies. I made a call to Jake Dunlap. I said, what do you think? He said, you should go for it. He goes, I, have no, I know a couple of people who need it. And that first call to Jake, April 1st, 2021 was our first customer. We've had 117 since then and done about $6 million. Oh my goodness. That's incredible. What an incredible story. You're going to have to write a book if you haven't done, if you haven't thought about it yet. That's just an incredible journey. I think, you know, like maybe another year or two when, I don't know, whatever milestone you think is right that your company gets to, it is time to put all that in a book. Yeah. I, I mean, I've, th I've thought about it just because it's, you know, everybody thinks, well, what would I write about? And then you end up listening to what I just said and said, well, I suppose <laughs> if, it can, if it can help other people, then, then maybe oh. there's something there, you know? Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. You know, I think about, you know, when you started the company, so it's actually only been what, about a year and a half or so? It's we've, We have been customer facing for a year and six weeks. Wow. Wow. So just a little over a year. It's amazing and growing it so much. So, I mean, I guess you touched on a little, a little bit already, but I mean, maybe if you could share a little bit more about, you know, how, kind of how you started the company, what was that original vision and maybe, you know, even at, how has it changed if at all in the last, you know, 12, 12 months? Yeah. So like anything, I, I eyes wide open, right? Life's like walking in with my life savings going Let's do it. And then super excited. You get one client. I mean, I was the BDR the first, you know, the first day we looked back at a Slack chat. We were laughing today because I was like messaging. I said, I'm in a call blitz. I can't hop on right now. And, 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 and now it's like, you know, we can't get off of a Zoom meeting. So extremely grateful. And it was just a team of five of us at first. And my, my vision was, was always that top of funnel, if done right, could earn you a spot to the rest of the funnel. Mm -hmm. Um, as it should, right? And I thought if we can nail top of funnel, then this segment of customers that I felt needed to be served the most, which called software and services companies, pre-seed to series B and maybe some C was was the ICP that I know I'd identified in my head. And that was the only thing that actually turned out, right? Um, I also thought, how are we gonna get customers? I had no idea that by posting content once a day on LinkedIn every day, it took four months, Roslyn, to, four months to get the first call it lead and then it just, I don't know what it was, if it was like the one post that happened, but by July, we were getting three or four inquiries a day. And I, I've, I've talked with other people, like I talked to Chris Walker, because I know he gets a lot of stuff from LinkedIn. I said, it's interesting. It's never anybody who's liked or commented on anything. It's all coming through dark social up to the CEO, our call points to CEO. And the CEO will either reach out directly on LinkedIn and say, I'd like to meet with you. And we'll always ask like, hey, what was it that, that made it? And it's usually a post and they'll say that video, you mentioned about this, this and this, we're having a problem with that. It could be something as simple as, you know, not simple, cold calling isn't simple, but you know, it could be anything. And if it resonates with what we do, we have a good meeting. If not, I refer him to, you know, you and your group or someone else would be a good referral partner say, well, actually, this isn't a good fit from us. You need Refine Labs or, or you need, you know, you need RevOps consulting or whatever, go down the list. We don't try and play in areas we're not good at. But I'd say right now, looking back, I would I would have never known that 
you can have the sort of discussions with C-level people you can and the, the amount of intimacy you can have with these people about such an important matter because it's always revenue, right? And, and everybody's trying to get it. And there's a fear a little bit that they can't get it because everybody's trying to go get it so aggressively right now. And there's some really good growth hackers out there, some really good RevOps people. But I feel we're also all kind of sitting around after this bubble going, man, we all just kind of were spoiled the last two years in a way. I mean, not so much with COVID, obviously, especially mm-hmm. for those who are impacted by it in a very serious way. Money was going around rampantly in in tech and VCs were getting setting record valuations. We saw Gong and Outreach. We we're like, oh my God, four and a half billion, another unicorn. And and I feel like now that some of that money's drying up, we're seeing not that business is going down, but people are really, really fixated on price now, right? Again, when they would, we could do a one call close and, and get a sixty thousand dollar deal done. It's incredible. Um, maybe let's talk a little bit more about sort of the, what you're doing, you know, I mean, you talk about leveraging the science of high tech solutions, right. With the art of human communication. And, you know, can you share more about, you know, what this means to you and how does this philosophy sort of play into what you're building? Yeah. So I, I, I've, I've learned a lot in, in terms of, you know, tech meets human. For me, I was a communications major um, and a playwright and a theater major in college. Oh, okay. So, so the, you know, you, and, and by the way, right now, I think you're well aware of this, like writing's a good thing to be good at right now, whether you're mm-hmm. an SDR or a content writer, because there's never been a, a, a bigger demand for content as well. And so once I started seeing this, I realized one thing we can get really good at that nobody else seems to be is the phone. And so we picked the phone specifically, although we do the all channels, um, and 97% of everything we said, we said about 20, 20 meetings a day comes from the phone. We mm-hmm. use email like like much more of a demand gen strategy where we don't have a call to action in the first four emails. We don't even ask a question in the first four emails of a cadence. Oh. We're, we're really kind of giving gifts away at the top, if you will, whether that's not no white papers, of course, but call it, if I'm emailing you and I'm trying to get in front of you, I'm going to probably give you like a state of RevOps today and who's done what and what's what. what who's strong at it, who's not, and that might capture your attention, but I'm still not going to ask anything from you. My hope is that when I capture you on the phone, that was something that was valuable enough that when I refer back to it, now you can put the human person in the voice and it really connects versus these segmented cadences where um, I've always been in the firm firm belief that the only reason cadences are ever linear is because people think, oh, it goes in sequential order. I'm like, but why? Mm-hmm. Why can't I reach out to, you know, with it, like do a combo, like email, LinkedIn, phone, and then give it a rest for two days and then go phone, phone, email, email. And the same day, like Sam, Sam Sales is talking about, like she's doing two emails on Saturday, one in the morning and one in the evening, and she's got the best response ever. And so Mm. it's a little bit of an art with email, but we do push to the phone. Um, LinkedIn is tricky. I mean, for a lot of BDRs, right? Like how do you use LinkedIn in a way beyond research, which which we do a pretty good job at, to go get business? Well, one of our BDRs had a really creative idea today. He did the unforbidden thing, where he literally <laughs> posted he posted he posted a picture, and tagged ten prospects who had connected with him on LinkedIn but hadn't responded, and tagged them specifically why their company and how they could benefit from the solution that he was you know he's working with one of our clients, and in the comments of it, one of the CIOs responded and said, "Let's book a meeting." And wow. I thought, that's crazy. But I mean, it's a little bit of, you got to find where they're at, as you know. And, and we found right now, they're just not living on email. I mean, we're doing everything we can to get email to work a little bit better. But I 
I want to say like in this world of what we do, like we want as much discovery as possible before the first meeting. Right. Because when you're setting it for a client, they expect you to not just provide the call recording, but give them some really good notes on qualification. Like what are they doing today? So we really have to make it into a mini you know, five to 10 minute discovery session if they'll give us the time. Got it. Got it. Yeah, it's interesting how, you know, I was just thinking about what you were talking about LinkedIn and how you've done so much content there and really built out a really good pipeline and customer engagement. That could be a book in itself as well. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I think that's can build out a real, you know, really interesting story about how you build a business just from sort of content and that hunger from everyone for knowledge and for content and for information and sharing and, you know, all of the different things that we've, I think we've both seen on LinkedIn. I can, I want to give you a quick yeah. hack, by the way, that we learned. Yeah. Um, I can't say it works at scale, by the way, and I, I try and use as much data versus hypothesis. But since LinkedIn you brought up is when we email out, and we have thought leadership. So if we're working with a client who has a, a good thought leadership voice who's active on LinkedIn, what we will do is put the link to a post of theirs in an email because even though they still won't respond to the email, what we found is now we can correlate like, oh, they've got 17 connections this week of people who went, read it, and then connected with that CEO. So now they get the forever feed. Wow, that's interesting. And so we're playing that in an interesting way. And it's, I think it's unique to our space, quite frankly, because we have to capture their attention in tight time zones. And by saying, you know, linkedin.com backslash this is not a malicious link because it's linkedin.com. Right. We show them the link, say what the article's about with a snapshot and say, I'd love to have you follow me. If anything, you'll learn that I post a lot about industry, this and this. And then and then we never have to speak again unless you're interested. And it kind of lets them off the hook a little bit, but suddenly they see you every day in their feed and they didn't really <laughs> realize what they did was the opposite effect of what they intended to. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love that. Thanks for sharing that. That's interesting. You know, another thing that I saw about your business that I also thought was really interesting was you talk about sales development as a service, right? As one of your mm -hmm. offerings. And I think this is really interesting space as we were talking about a little bit before we started recording, because I, you know, driving top of funnel engagement is so tough, right? You've touched on a little mm -hmm. bit as we've going through this discussion and especially in this market, right? Cause talent is scarce, experience is scarce, right? Acquiring really strong sales professionals is really competitive. I wanted to ask you, you know, kind of what does sales development as a service really mean to you? And how has this approach contributed to your own revenue growth? Sales, to me, sales development is a service and the way that we look at it, uh, the way that we approach it is we, we aren't a band-aid solution. You know, there's like companies like Science, Memory Blue, Jump Crew, they've all done a good job, predictable revenue. We all know predictable revenue, right? Like, mm -hmm. They all do a good job at kind of doing this a little bit differently for the most part. And what we said is we don't really want to be a band-aid solution. We can be if need be, but it's just not that much fun to come in for three or four months and just plug pipe, right? Where we right. said, if anything, if, if we can start to assemble intelligently and, you know, we have Tableau imported, so we're consistently using analytics and our rev ops and sales ops team does a good job of giving us great information because our rev ops is, is both external facing and internal facing, right? So we have really mm -hmm. rev ops is, is interesting, but we, we really have to look at this like what we're giving you should give you enough to know whether you're testing a new market, a new vertical or whatever it is, is, is we're a good way to test something out for a good six months and come up with a hypothesis with our client success team where where you've got what you need to now build your team around it and we did the testing the mistakes you've got now 
call it two to 300 call recordings that you can go and put into a library that you can drip into the training where they can feel like they're listening to something that's educating them from someone who's done it successfully before, relatively success- successful. And mm-hmm. when we can do that, I think we have the biggest impact. We were on with one of our, we had a hundred, it's a nice, biggest customer we have is a $120 million a year customer, Series C funded. We've been with them for seven months. We get 10 appointments a month. They've closed a couple of big F, F, you know, Fortune 100 logos, and their their ARR is 680 grand on average. So, we love that one because we're doing the work that they need to. Now, on today's call, I even thought they were asking they were asking my opinion to see how should we measure, you know, this to see how we could scale this out. So we just went through some fairly simple metrics. But I said, if you're going to be comparing our reps versus the cumulative effort and looking for some differentiators, just understand they'll all be different because they're different people. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But but so take it with a grain of salt. Like at, at the end of the day, this will be extremely meaningful. It maybe won't apply exactly because the reps that we have on their account are former AEs. Like these are we pay our BDRs 100K like they're they're making good money. Right. And so these people are experienced. And so I said, now, when you go hire BDRs, if you go hire somebody at a 65K OTE, like this should help them. But maybe it might take them longer right, to develop sort of those enterprise chops. So we're almost giving them advice. Like if you're really in the enterprise hire enterprise BDRs and give them 120K. Whatever it's going to take to get there, we know sort of the CAC involved and the cost of opportunity. And so I think that we probably are the best fit for a series B through C company and C or C A. Cause I mean, a bootstrap company holds on to their money so tight. I know from experience that it almost becomes personal and it, it becomes a little less fun to work with people when they, they feel like if it doesn't work out, this could end them. Right. Mm-hmm. Or that they need this to work to stay in business. Those are two situations which we refuse to be a part of. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Very stressful. <laughs> Very stressful. You know, when I think about organizations, you know, if they're thinking about sort of leveraging this type of service to drive revenue, I think you touched on this a little bit already, but what do you think are some of those key factors that really they should be thinking about to decide, you know, whether or not this is right for them? Well, I think I think it's not right for everybody. I mean, I think in some cases what I've seen is they're running to outbound when really outbound should always be there. They should really be focused on more of a demand gen strategy because they really need to create the demand to support the outbound lift. And mm-hmm. and I think to go outbound, you don't just need an MVP and understand the TAM. Those are all sort of table stakes. And hopefully every company knows, you know, simple metrics like this is my share today. This is the potential share that I can go get realistically. Like peel away from the VC pitch decks, like the reality is this, right? Like the reality is, if I can get an incremental lift and get 1% of the market, what does that mean to me? Not just now, but the lifetime value of that customer. Mm-hmm. And so we try and find the right customers for them that are going to be good, lifetime, valuable, non, you know, less in the friction kind of customers. Obviously, we call that the ICP, but they haven't always identified their ICP. And quite frankly, as it sits today, I can sit with them and do that, but we're not best suited for that. Like literally, I would send them to you, right? Mm. And I'd say, well, maybe she can help you or maybe there's another shop. Once you find that, don't burn all your money trying to find it using us. Find it, then let us go do it. Right. And then we'll help you not only get pipeline that you can show can be repeatable and scalable. But to me, it's 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 really how do you look at this in a way from a revenue standpoint that's not just going to get revenue in the door today. The pipeline that you can nurture can pass on internally and you're patient enough to see that in six months when they have a need versus when you want to sell it to them now, you're able to do the appro- appropriate nurture that then their decision times with you're still in business, 
they will come back to you, especially if you're nurturing, especially if you now you're connecting on LinkedIn in an authentic way, and they're seeing you and you're seeing them. To me, it's the impact of revenue, which the impact has to do with the timing. It has to do, to me, a lot with, did they go through a full sales cycle? Because I feel like they should, because I feel like when people rush, it very rarely works out. Uh, and I, so if you have a 60 day sales cycle and someone buys in 12, I almost say that just seems off to me. Like mm-hmm. it feels to me like it was a knee jerk reaction. They might not really want to do this. Yeah. They're doing it out of fear more than they are out of motivation. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I love that. That's a really interesting way to think about it as well. I think there's, um, there's a lot, it's very thoughtful <laughs> and I, I appreciate that. I think it's very thoughtful and very insightful to kind of think about some of those, those key things that you really should be thinking about whether it's right for you and when, you know, I think that's the main question is kind of, when is it right? What things have to happen before you can be successful in sort of implementing this process or this strategy, mm-hmm. you know, talk about strategy a little bit, you know, obviously when it comes to driving predictable revenue, which, which is what everybody wants and revenue growth, which everybody really wants, you know, I think strategy is really critical, but you know, coming from a RevOps background, obviously strategy is critical, but so is the execution, right? When you think about, yeah, when you think about some of the things that you see companies doing really right when it comes to sort of approaching revenue strategy and execution, what are some of those things that you think companies are doing right? And then maybe what are some of the things you see them doing wrong? Well, I think if you look at fast, you would say that's the wrong way to do it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, like the company, you know, I can't believe that companies would can, you know, if you get so much cash and you know you got to burn through it technically in 12 to 18 months. I think what I see wrong is I go buy all the tech, right? All of it. And, yeah. and, and I'm going to put it all in the top of the funnel. Well, please don't forget about RevOps. Please don't forget about all your other tech needing people who, mm-hmm. how does that tech fit throughout the architecture of the organization? So I'll give you a really boring example, but this will make sense with you. <laughs> Um, in, in, in our world, project management is a pretty big thing. And so we have client success and then project management backing it. So I, who live in Salesforce, had to get driven to start to use Monday. And I was like, oh, my God. I'm like, I'm not used to this. I want to go to Salesforce when I want to see something. And and so they would sync and they would correlate. But that ended up being the best tech stack purchase we could get and not the most expensive at all. Mm-hmm. Um but, well, actually, it, I mean, it's, it's not expensive compared to our Zoom info and Salesforce spend, which is, you know, half a million bucks or whatever. <laughs> it's a, but it's the most powerful tool to keep us in line with customer expectations. So how do we then carry Monday throughout the entire organization, make sure that it's riding within Salesforce? So my policy is as long as everything can go back to the record and mm-hmm. as long as it can, everything can consolidate cleanly to show you history of activity, history of account, Whatever you want to see, I, I think that to underinvest as tech is probably smarter than to overinvest because number one, overinvesting puts you into long lengthy contracts that you simply can't get out of, and now you're going to be married to the tech if you use it or not. And I think software usage right now is even sitting around 60%. A lot of people aren't using it at all, anyways, with the adoption, and that's a, a CX thing. But if you look at your own adoption of tech, right, it's who made the decisions and who came up with a plan and was it consistent enough to have someone in tenure for two or three years in position where they actually were to see through their plan. So the biggest thing I've seen broke is you get big, bold leaders who come in, make tech decisions, and then they get their time in a year and a half. They leave. They put their stamp of approval on it. Someone else comes and says, let's get new tech. This is what I like. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you're, 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 you're going through another tech adoption and, and, and a lift, and it's very painful for people to go through tech changes. And I've seen more tech fatigue in the last two months from people than I've ever seen because 
I mean, I had three Chrome extensions the other day that were there, Reggie, Lavender, and another one. I'm like, I don't need these all. <laughs> like they all essentially kind of do the same thing after a while. And so that would be it is just be thoughtful about how you're expecting tech to lift your revenue because I've seen tech accelerate it. But when you pour tech on bad, it accelerates bad very, very quickly. Yeah, that's great. I 100% wholeheartedly agree. I think the tech stack and having a strategy even around that and execution is incredibly important because there are a lot of really, really great tools out there. Um, but you've got to be really clear on, you know, what is the use case? What business, you know, challenge are you trying to solve? How are you going to use it? Make sure that you're driving process around that technology and then making sure you're driving adoption and continuing to iterate the technology because that's another thing that I've seen quite a bit is, you know, as you mentioned, you know, sales leader or a leader comes in, they bring in their own tech stack, they want all of these things, they leave and the next person comes in and they layer on, right? Instead of looking at, you know, what do I retire and get rid of, right? Before I start to purchase something else or what can I use that I already have and maybe use in a different way or use a little bit in a different in a different manner to get more value. So love that. I love that. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about brand. You know, on your website, you talk about, you know, building your brand on LinkedIn is like fishing. So brand is just so incredibly important, right? And can really help accelerate revenue if it's done right. But I think, you know, a lot of companies do this really well, which sounds like you're doing a great job at, but then some well, they, they don't do it as well, right? So maybe can you elaborate on this analogy of fishing and, you know, what does it mean and what tips or advice do you have for companies on how to, yeah. you know, build a better brand? Yeah. So I think for me, I'm going to peel it back to what I can speak of personally and then talk about the brand. And we've all heard about personal brand trumping company brand. So I think mm-hmm. what, what, what I saw with brand in the, the fishing analogy would mean that we can be ourselves, which is highly encouraged, especially in my house. I don't know about yours, but like yeah. there's no other person to be than yourself. Now, from a brand perspective, that's that's incredibly important to be authentic, but it doesn't mean everything you say is going to hit and resonate with people. And so for me, for example, the first four months I chose to have an effort. I mean, I hired I hired a firm to help me come up with ideas around LinkedIn. And I remember thinking like at the time, I, th- I was like, oh, my God, $2,000 a month. Like, this is so much money, which it, it is, you know. But when you're thinking about your marketing budget, like, that was it a year ago. Like, and so I, it took me four months to get a, a post to get more than, like, eight likes, I think. And we were sharing this before. And, and, and really what I was trying to do was see what was biting on the fish line, not to just dump more non-authentic stuff on it, but to say, well, it needs to resonate. I mean, I, I, I'm i not here for fun. I mean, I love LinkedIn, but ultimately we're all here for business and to help other people. So I'm like, if I'm going to make content, it either should help somebody or hopefully can get people to want to talk to us. And then once I really started saying, I'm going to, I'm going to really try and settle on pillars of content that makes sense to me and, and, and iterate on those, that's when it started to work. And once it started to work, let me share with you, 90, 91.2% of our revenue on a 6 million run rate came from LinkedIn organic. And that's mm-hmm. how that worked personally. And so I would say, look at Speckit, for example, right? And they've been like all the bees knees lately in terms of a little bit of buzz, you know, awesome female CEO. They are doing such a good job of branding and nobody really is talking about Speckit. Although like the other day, like you look at a photo on LinkedIn and there's a little Speckit, you know, stuffed animal on its way to the airport in Austin. So that to me in, in the world of SaaS 
at least is a way to get that brand to permeate both personally until you can graduate to that really well-known brand. And then brands, I feel like a brand, like if you're a brand, you better understand what the brand stands for. Like, what is it you stand for? Like a word we've embraced in our four pillars of, of our company is a word we embrace is love. Mm. And love to some mean, some people means accountability, right? Love to other people makes you, means we make you feel good. This is psychological safety, but we have to emphasize love because it makes sense to us and it, and it resonates with us, right? And, and love means customer love and this and that. And so that word's worked really well for us and we can carry out every day. So as we transfer, someone told me this the other day, they said, Steve, you're going to find that as you grow, like you have to be more about the company and have less of your face and more of others. I said, well, number one, I'd gladly have other people on camera. Nobody in our company wants to be, right? Um, <laughs> like guaranteed they've had the opportunities, guaranteed they're like, you keep doing it. I want nothing to do with that. <laughs> Please keep doing it. Now, and if I, if I don't post like for a day by 4 p.m., they're texting me like, are you going to post today? And so <laughs> it's interesting to see that. But to me, the brand we need to do the journey is year two, year three is it doesn't need to be Steve Schmidt. I don't want it to be Steve Schmidt they think of. I want it to be the company's name and that our brand carries more weight than anything I can say because that is important to me both personally and professionally that the people in our company can feel like they're not on the Steve Schmidt social media ride, that they're mm -hmm. truly making an impact as a company, not yeah, that's another Steve lead. Let's let's go knock it out. Like I want us to feel like it's us, not not me. And that's extremely critical to me. I think. Yeah, I love that. I love that. But I do think the personal brand. It's just amazing how it has really taken. You know, as you said, personal brand kind of trumps company brand these days. It's it's really kind of crazy because there are a lot of people who follow, you know, individuals and then they learn right about the company. Then they say, Oh, what do you do? What does your company do? And then it drives this interest yep. in the business that stems from, you know, an interest in that person. So it's interesting is I'm going to ask you a question and see how you answer it. Would yeah. you rather go like, it, I know you'd go rather hire a team. So let's say you're not where you are right now and you just got a new job at a new company and mm -hmm. someone said, we can either go hire a sales team or we can go get Kevin Dorsey, John Barrows, and I just go down the list, right? Yeah. Of people who are going to now speak on our half, endorse us in an authentic way, blah, blah, blah. Because like Mark A. Smith, who's our advisor, is on LinkedIn with like 100,000 followers. We, I met him on LinkedIn. He he went to to he asked if I could come meet with him about his company. He ended up quitting three days later. He became our advisor. Mm -hmm. Mark gets at least one or two leads from us a day just because he's in conversations where he said, "Hey, full disclosure, I'm one of these guys. I'm their advisor, but you should talk to these guys." So he sees so much because he's in the crossroads of it all with a hundred thousand connections, right? And so that mm -hmm. influencer brand, like if you had to pick, what would you pick? If it netted, you don't know in revenue. What are you going to bet on? A team that you can get to get you the next 12, 18 months of revenue, or are you going to try and get a, call it an influencer imprint to get out there in front of the masses? Yeah, that's probably an easy one for me because I really believe in this kind of personal brand and the value of people, you know, and that thought leadership. So, I mean, I would definitely go with the <laughs> hire a couple of really strong people who are experts in this field, right? People who yeah. really know the business and our trusted advisors and trusted thought partners, right? That have that credibility in the industry, especially when you first get started, right? I mean, because they will help you build that brand and show yeah. credibility again and kind of show that you demonstrate that you're a, a, a valuable partner and kind of know what you're doing.
right? And have that, that behind you. And then as you start to establish your brand and you start to build customer credibility and you have customer success stories and, you know, all of that, then you can, you know, obviously work yep. on, you know, you'll, you'll be at the point where you can hire more salespeople and you have a message at that point, right? Mm-hmm. And you have product market fit, you have all of the different, you know, a lot more things that you can leverage to go after new customers. But yeah, that mm-hmm. credibility is just incredibly important. That's the word credibility, right? It's the credibility because I think, you know, in some of the companies that I've worked at where we sell into a RevOps persona, you know, jumping on a call with the prospect and talking the same language and, you know, you understand their pains, you know, what's important to them. You can kind of speak, like I always talk about the ops therapy, right? Because it's very therapeutic to have that ops to ops discussion. And then you immediately build credibility. And then they say, oh, well, what does your company do? You know, what does the product do? How do you use it? And you can kind of, it, it just builds a story there and gives you a path to that, to that discussion in that conversation. But yeah, the credibility is incredibly, incredibly important. Yeah, it, it is. And so I would pick the same, <laughs> knowing what I know now, <laughs> uh, just because yeah. if we're talking about credibility and, and, and revenue and speed to market, like I'm surprised more companies haven't done that. I get why they are sheepish about it. But I mean, I've, I've even heard lately where, you know, venture capital is almost looking at funding personal brands mm-hmm. um, in the next five years because they know that invest worth it because they see what's coming. And it's interesting to me. And I'm not talking like Instagram. I'm like, they really want to buy people who have influence in any line of anything. So they right. can get a lifetime value off of everything that that person touches. And that gets scary. And also it's like, well, that makes <laughs> sense because that, that I mean, if we can do $6 million in year one by spinning up a LinkedIn account and making pretty good content, like, okay, I'm assuming someone else would say, if I wanted it, which I don't, hey, Steve, come be our CEO, do the same thing. No, I don't really want to, but mm-hmm. that's worth a lot of money and, and, and intelligence and, and like you said, credibility that you can get instantly mm-hmm. day one and you kind of bring the audience with you. Now, if that person leaves, they kind of leave with them too. Mm-hmm. And so yep. it's an interesting thing. And I think that that will forever perplex me because, you know, let's, let's admit it. Most people on LinkedIn, even an influencer are going to post something and then go back and look at it about 20 to 30 times to see who looked at it. What are they saying? They'll engage <laughs> with them. Well, we all have some egos, right? We, but we also have to be aware of like, who is looking at this? Is it somebody who's a prospect? Is it somebody who I wouldn't expect to normally do that? Um, and so as long as you're getting fresh people and not the same echo chamber in your group and it's building over time, you're absolutely headed in the right direction, whether you're starting at one or 100,000 followers. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I think you mentioned this earlier, probably before we started recording, but even, you know, when you post and it's surprising that even though folks will see what you posted, they read your content and they follow you, but they may not actually engage in your post, right? They may not comment, they may not like, or have a reaction to it, but they've seen it. And then they, you know, then oftentimes there's a lot of folks who are more comfortable kind of reaching out, you know, directly versus, you know, putting themselves out there on social media. So the trust, the trust it builds by them seeing you. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had people walk in there like, man, I feel like I know you. Like I've been looking at you. (laughs) And and, and they've already heard kind of what you have to say. So they came for a reason. So cut the first 50% of the, the whole cat and mouse game out. (laughs) It's gone. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. They can see that I know you, and if they know you, then they're going to say, well, then he must be a good person because she would not associate with bad people. And so it's a little <laughs> bit of the the profiling of it all to say, okay, this person, you kind of pass the sniff test, and I don't have to even ask for referrals. Yeah, that's right. That's right. 
That's amazing. Well, you know, as I think about, you know, I think about the revenue engine and this podcast, I'm always hoping, right, that others will be able to learn how to accelerate revenue growth and how to power the revenue engine. And I think we've talked about a lot of um, things here and really appreciate you kind of sharing a lot of those insights. And I think there's a lot of learnings there already. But I guess what I would ask is sort of from your perspective, you know, are there like the top maybe two or three things that you think, hey, all revenue leaders should really be thinking about today? that will really make a difference in accelerating revenue? Yeah. Uh, To me, you have to not be so bullish on creating your own team and having to build it from the ground up because it's a fun thing to do, but sometimes you have to augment and that might be hiring, go down the list of, of call it best in class, those people, whether it's in demand gen, rev ops or lead gen. You don't have to build it in-house day one. So I think sometimes you got to bring the heavy artillery in to get it right versus trying to build with, you know, at market OTEs because you're going to get what you pay for. And so if, if, if I'm there, I invest heavy on the front end to preserve my kind of revenue, legacy of revenue in that companies that can last as long as possible because the average tenure of a CROVP is right around, what, a year and seven months? Mm-hmm. Year and eight months, it's pretty short. So you got to make an impact and make it quickly. And I think that that's the first piece of advice I would get is is load up heavy on people who are consultants around your core team, build the core team slower than your consultants, and then the consultants will probably help you build your core team. So whether that's you, Scaled, Chris Walker, don't care, you'll find them, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the first piece of advice. I would have done that more so than I even did. And I did it a lot to begin this because it helped me guide the journey. Number two is I think it's okay to lose early and lose often. And make mm-hmm. sure that when you're looking at Salesforce that you have whatever your thing is, whether that's mine, right? Lose early, lose often, and then nurture the heck out of whatever detail we got out of that so we know how to classify that and lead score that is, is that's my second piece. Third piece is I would, if I'm a revenue leader, I'm hiring two people right away and one is not a CRO. So if I'm a revenue leader and I'm a CRO, I would hire, I would hire a very, very solid head of RevOps. I would hire a very, very solid head of demand gen. I would hire maybe a small one or two person lean inbound team to convert. And then I wouldn't build an outbound team until year two. I would invest heavy on those things so I could get it right before I try and scale and go to market. And my market's now warmed up through demand gen and RevOps has made it right and profitable and everybody's unsiloed and everything's synergistically working together. And so year two, you can sort of have an easier time than just racing to revenue and growing like crazy, like everybody's growing, growing, growing. Well, yeah. growing sucks. Growing's hard. Like growing's fun, but it's kind of like driving down the the interstate, like with a convertible, sticking your head out the roof. And <laughs> I can tell you, one of the things I didn't take seriously is, at least, you know, Bootstrapville, where we've been living, is growing causes so much cash flow problems, because the mm-hmm. second you think that your P and L is tight and you have rocky growth or churn or a really rapid growth. More money is good, but more money costs more resources, more tech stacks, more tools, more problems. Because customers innately, like we didn't hire client success because customers are easy. They should be difficult. And they get problematic once you bring them on board. So the second you recognize revenue is when your problems start. And so get your problems diagnosed and set up as well as possible. I'd say on the tail end of month four and six of that, I would hire a phenomenal CX person and build a three to four person CX team before I ever hire my true first sales team. Because now I've got a founder-led, founder-built thing. It's cooking, it's making revenue, and now I'm sticking in the outbound team to go make it happen fast, repeatable, and over and over Mm -hmm. again. And I'm still going to go the best. And I don't know why people aren't – I mean, I'd be always going to hire the best. If I had the money, 
in funding to do it, I would literally call you up and say, I want you to run RevOps. You'd say, Steve, I'm really happy. I'd say, well, I don't care because I really <laughs> want you to run RevOps for my company. And I quite frankly, I need you. And you're probably going to say no because you're happy. And I'm going to go to the next person and the next person <laughs> because I, I would want somebody who's good and has done it multiple times before on to get me to where I'm going now. You've probably if they if they've been through a series a before and they're they, they've kind of made it out the other end i doubt they want to do it again unless it's a really special and meaningful relationship so it's tough to do but i would i would say it's very well worth it to get that sherpa alongside you to take the ride yeah yeah that's great that's really really great advice and thank you i'm flattered <laughs> As well, definitely. Well, so, so thank you so much for joining me, um, Steve. But you know, as we, as we wrap up, and before I let you go, you probably know that I always ask two questions. Um, always love to yeah. know two things. One is, what is the one thing about you that others would be surprised to learn? And two, what is the one thing that you really want everyone to know about you? I think they'd be surprised to know that in 2014, I had a my first midlife crisis and I thought that I'd become a power lifter. Oh. And then I started going to like these regional competitions and you'd end up at like in a super eight hotel in the conference room lifting <laughs> weights on a Saturday. But I, I really poured a lot into it. And I get my bent, my whatever the deadlift, I could, I think my deadlift was like 610 pounds at my top. Oh but, my I mean, goodness. I was, I was really cow. into it, you know? And so, so wow. I was really into it. I was living that life and now I haven't touched anything since <laughs> um, that might, that or the slipknot tattoo down my back might, might be one of the two things that scare most people. I used to have 11 piercings, <laughs> eyebrow tattoo and hair down to my shoulders, but I was a singer for a rock band. So oh, I give you three things, not one. Let's see. One thing, <laughs> one thing about me, uh, the second question was worded how again, I'm sorry. Yeah. That you, something that you want everyone to know about you. Mm. Yeah, I think that for me, I'm a, I'm a I'm a very trusting person. Doesn't mean I'm the best person in the world. I just tend to trust quick, mm -hmm. and um, I've also learned to professionally through coaching on how to not do that because it actually the thing it's like your superpower becomes a kryptonite, and mm. and that has and, and when you go to start a company, your your niceness people will take advantage of you, and they might not even know it, right? They may have never intended to that to do that, but um, it's hard to be nice and be a founder because I'm a people first person all the time. And I do think about people's families, but if you're not performing and you've been on a plan and we've really tried to get you there, I'm really not gonna feel that bad if it's time to say we gotta part ways. And, yeah, you know, I've had to do it, what, two, 300 times in my life. Now it's never easier, ever, ever. It never feels good knowing it feels terrible to them and most of them take it on the chin. But I, I think hiring slower, and in, in year two for me is is really not trusting up front. Not, not that I don't trust, but you have to earn it. And so I think there's a happy medium there where you can really think someone's commendable. They've got an acumen. That's great. They've got a good heart, but it doesn't mean I need to trust and go all in on them day one. I think right. over time it's for me is I'm always going to welcome in people, right? I mean, I'm hugging people within two seconds of meeting them. I'm telling them <laughs> my life story. They're like, you share a lot, Steve. I'm an oversharer. And <laughs> And for me, that quality is also, I will say, it allows you to be so transparent in business. People immediately, most of the time, immediately trust you because you don't have a layer of bullshit hanging over you. Right. Um, you don't have that salesy gloss to you. Like I still love to sell stuff, a lot of stuff, but I'd love to have very to the point conversations. And I'm sure they're very similar to you because you've just got that demeanor. And that's why you're successful. You're a person first that people like. Then secondly, you're a hell of a rev ops leader. It's like, that's why people <laughs> are doing you. business with you. 
And Thank and that's you. why your personal brand matters. No one's listening to this show because they think you're an amazing RevOps. Well, pardon me, lots <laughs> of people are. But first and foremost, they wouldn't listen to it if they didn't like you, right? They like you well, and then the message is second. Yeah, well, and all the amazing guests like yourself kind of coming on the show well, and really just sharing your stories. I just think that in every in every episode with every guest, I mean, I you know, as much as people tell me, oh, I've learned so much. It's like, I actually learn a lot. I actually go back and listen. Like as, as soon as we stop recording, I'm going to go back and listen to what we talked about because there's just so many good, great insights. And I think that's what makes this, um, you know, podcast so special is just because people like you will come on and be super transparent and just very open and very giving, which I incredibly, incredibly appreciate. Yeah. It's been fun. You, you've, it's, Probably been one of the more fun podcasts I've been on, quite <laughs> honest with you. So thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me. And again, just really appreciate your time and super grateful for all of the experience and sharing. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks so much. 